from KPFA in Berkeley, California, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, California, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online and archived at www.kpfa.org. It's three o'clock and times for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone in the cover to cover slot, followed at 3.30 by Free Speech Radio News, Hard Knock Radio at four, Flashpoints at five, and hey, check out La Raza Chronicles at 7 p.m. tonight. It's a fantastic show. Stay tuned. The ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, Tuesday, April 13th, 2009. As I know you have heard, we are celebrating KPFA's 60th anniversary this week. Uh, That's the Ides of April, folks. Yes, the Ides of April. Uh, 60 big ones. Sixty big ones. <laughs> no tells what it used to be, is it? Uh, oh, well, uh, I had to buy a new shopping cart yesterday at Target to carry my uh, collected works and my library back and forth to the station. Uh, what is that? I've been here for not 30 years, quite not half our time, but uh, enough years so that... Um, the archive, my personal archive, is enough landfill to fill up half my apartment. Uh, anyway, I hope that you have survived Easter. Uh, I hope you got resurrected. Uh, I went out in all this spring weather. I went down to the Berkeley flea market. That's why I had to buy the new shopping cart. I always go when the flea market's closing. And the vans were trying to get out of there, and I was making an offer, you know, on things. As they go home, you see, you can get stuff half price. And uh, I I was standing at a book table, and a huge van backed into my shopping cart and totaled it. Thank the goddess it hit my cart and not my ankle. So anyway, uh, I had to go to Target to buy a big cart and... Thank God I had several kind women with me to help me assemble it. I never realized that putting a shopping cart together is as complicated as fixing your own car. Anyway, uh, I survived this holiday. I'm sure I will survive the next. Uh, (laughs) As Beckett says, survive St. John the Baptist Day. (laughs) Go on panting. Until, let's see, what's next? Halloween, I guess. Anyway, 
we're celebrating this week, and I thought what I would do just just for for fun, for um, for my own indulgence, I would go back and look at old stuff, stuff that dates from the days when I first came to KPFA. Uh, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy! I I looked at a pile of my books this morning, books that I've written, and there's an essay in here in which I tried, I tried to synthesize 28 essays written for the Berkeley newspaper Grassroots. And I put them all together in an essay called The Revisionist Imperative or Don't Rock the Boat, Sink It. Now I thought, now that would be, that would be the the essay that skims over Oh, maybe the first ten years when I was on KPFA, uh, bouncing around, I was trying to be a publicist for the revolution. <laughs> anyway, uh, oh dear, uh, the eighties. I remember recognizing, well, not, not completely. I didn't understand completely, uh, as my younger son pointed out to me, you're the one who said Reagan could never be elected to high office. Anyway, uh, this essay begins with a little epigraph, not an epitaph, an epigraph, actually. Uh, <laughs> yes, it was kind of funereal. From the formal, former federal budget director, David Stockman. That was Ronnie Reagan's hitman. And David Stockman wrote in the early 80s, he wrote, I don't accept that equality is a moral principle. Well, I thought about that. I remember writing it down and showing it to a few folks, and they just sort of, you know, their eyes rolled, and they said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, if equality is no longer a moral principle, then this is no longer the United States of America. Anyway, I thought uh, I thought I could start a new revolution, uh, a publicist for the revolution. Right, that's what I labeled myself. Any revolution would do. My favorite was the revolution of touch. Now you know we're getting on with that. I think of the Queen of England, eighty years old, with her arm around Michelle Obama's waist, and Michelle. Uh, what is that? Flying in the face of the taboo against touching royalty, put her arm around the queen. This is indeed the revolution of touch. Yes. Zing! A resurrection. Anyway, I was, what is it, still in that stage of life where I thought that plays and fiction and art and poetry, you know, were the way to change the world. Um... What was it? We we used to say that aesthetics was the mother of ethics. People would choke on that and say, what does that mean? And I would say, well, you see, you have to tenderize them. You have to tell them a story that makes them feel empathetic or sympathetic or anyway, you know, give them what we used to call a liberal education instead of what I guess is today a conservative education. A conservative education, I guess, is the one that teaches you how to make money. <laughs> yes, it's got to translate into cash. Anyway, 
I was at that stage of my life, still doing plays and writing fiction and trying to uh, trying to go in for radical chic. Just when it was going out of style, I'm always a little late. <laughs> oh yes, like like at the flea market, I always come when they're closing. Right. Anyway. I wanted people to understand how important it is to be out of step with the times. You know, uh, what is the word for that? Um, an outsider. Uh, I wrote about being an advocate, uh, a practitioner of um, free love in the 50s. Remember free love in the 1950s? Then in the 60s, I tried to... Um, uh, promote the cause of celibacy. Yes, a disciplined celibate, I said. All that stuff at the Sexual Freedom League I found to be um, <laughs> a bit tricky, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we weren't allowed. We weren't allowed to be uptight, you remember. Anyway, the me decade of the 70s I thought, well, that's the decade when we should be community activists. Well, actually, all this going against the grain uh, got me just exactly uh, nowhere. Uh, people looked at me and said, listen, you know, you think what's in is out. Uh, I thought that one parody would be worth a thousand polemics, but most of the time... Uh, <laughs> I just noticed that I was no longer invited... To the parties, uh, nobody wanted to uh, include me socially. Uh, so I decided there's no time to be subtle. I decided that journalism was the answer. You know, uh, what is it? Uh, old Bertolt Brecht says that art is a hammer with which to shape civilization. Just come out and, uh, you know, clobber them upside the head. Make the world safe for satire. Uh, anyway, um, I figured out that nobody will hire an anarchist, so there was no money. Uh, I had to stick with the small papers, you know, the free press, free to those, uh, well, it's free to those of us who are willing to live on air, uh, Anyway, my younger son looked at what I was publishing and he said, Well, the more they pay, the less you say. I put my articles down on the kitchen table and uh, wrote on each one the amount paid for my writing. And then I uh, made a note of the passages cut by the editors. At one end of the pile was a review of Rosalind Carter's book, First Lady from Plains. Now, the San Francisco Chronicle paid me 100 big ones. They cut the part about Rosalind's prophecy of the coming revolutions in Central and South America. It's the best part of Rosalind Carter's book. It describes her journeys through the Latin American countries where she finds that our example during the 1960s uh, is one of the inspirations for the revolutionary fervor spreading throughout Latin America. Mm -hmm. ha, they cut that, as I said. Um, 
they noted that um, Jennifer was ranting again, I noticed. Yes, uh, no ranting allowed, they said. Uh, much further down on the table was an article that I wrote for the women's newspaper Plexus. I was reviewing a television play about J. Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb. Let's see. Uh, the editors did not change the text in any very significant way, but my pithy title was Oppenheimer, Faust or Fraud? <laughs> they retitled my work uh, The Oppenheimer Legacy. Dull, dull, well, I sighed. They pay you. I guess they own you. The fee for that article was 16 bucks. 16 big ones, folks. At the far end, at the bottom of the table, are the articles written for papers that did not pay the writers for their contributions. In my experience, it is only in that situation that a writer can be certain that nobody's going to mess around with your work. Uh, actually, um, there were several wonderful papers in Berkeley in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and I, what I did was check to make sure that uh, no one, no, um, uh, no one on the paper was being paid. We paid the typesetters, that kind of thing, but the writers themselves. If we were all working for free, then I figured it was okay, egalitarian, yes. Then equality was a moral principle. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see. I want to tell you a little bit about Berkeley's most honest publication, the one that I equated with KPFA in the old days. I won't argue its merits, only its freedom from the ills of exploitation. Um, it was called Grassroots, and it kept our community honest. Well, it tried. Uh, I noticed in the Berkeley Daily Planet something interesting today. I was coming down here on the bus, and I was reading. I didn't have a chance to finish, uh, but the gist of it was that the Berkeley Daily Planet... Uh, is asking for help to pay the writers, the journalists. It said that would, the money would go directly to, um, inside reporting. Uh, and they offered, yes, they offered a, a little subscription, uh, blank. I cut it out and I'll call them and ask them what that's all about. I don't know whether we should have special fun for the writers, it's, it's hard to know what's right to do. Uh, anyway, uh, the Berkeley Weekly Planet Weekly is uh, certainly our paper of the moment. Uh, I came to Grassroots, the old paper, in the fall of 1981. Let's see, that's, that's oh my gosh... Oh, 30 years, not quite, 28 years ago. Oh, golly, time, all that blood under the bridge. That newspaper died in the mid-80s. It was a victim of the uh, take the cash and let the credit go. 
times. It wasn't just the yuppies. It was the inability of the community to produce a new crop of old lefties. I wandered around asking, what's left of the left? And they told me that, uh, yes, that nostalgia ain't what it used to be and that I better get a new gig. Uh, I'm sure that today's youth is doubtless thrashing through all the same old straw and becoming the new left or the neo-left or the neo-liberals. Historical imperatives, uh, I think are to be seen now on the underground videos, not so underground. They're mostly the net nowadays. Uh, we're always reinventing the wheel, always finding a new place for the radical voices. Uh, I remember my first piece in Grassroots dealt with the imprisonment of Dr. Nawal el Sadawi. Uh She's back in the news again. She's got a new book out. Her last name is Sadawe, El Sadawe, capital E-L-S-A-A-D-A-W-I. Dr. Nawal, she is an Egyptian Marxist feminist, a radical. Now, the book that she began with, the book that hit me between the eyes, was called The Hidden Face of Eve. It was a study of the practice of female genital excision in the Arab world. We're talking a hundred million women excised folks. Um, Dr. Sadawe's work as a physician gives her the kind of grounding in female oppression which is inspirational to my uh, Western sensibility. A few years later, when I heard her speak, uh, she was here in Berkeley at Wheeler Auditorium, Auditorium. she cautioned us, we here in the West, women in uh, the U.S. of A., against our condescension. In the East, she points out, they only cut off genital nerve tissue. In the West, she says, we... We excise brain tissue, at least metaphorically. She didn't put it quite like that. Uh, but she suggested that we look at our billboards, our advertising, uh, at the work of Sigmund Freud, at the exploitation of women as commodities, and then ask ourselves if mind control is not as powerful as sexual mutilation when it comes to the suppression of women. You know what that's all about, uh, torture for social control. Uh, yes, whether it's the anorexic or, well, none of that today, none of that today. Uh, I remember being uh, stunned by the work of this woman, Dr. Sadawe. Uh, she was interrogated in Egypt on September 28, 1981, regarding her participation in the United Nations Mid-Decade Conference for Women held in Copenhagen during the summer of 1980. In July of 1980, at that conference, a reporter for the People's Translation Service in Oakland, California, interviewed Dr. Sadawe published her statements in Newsfront International in October 1980. 
Her creed is astonishing. She wrote, to be revolutionary means that one examines the problems of women from all aspects, the historical, the sociological, the economic, and the psychological. If you carry out this analysis, you should be against the establishment of the patriarchal class system. As a radical feminist, you should oppose imperialism, Zionism, feudalism, and inequality between the sexes, between the nations, between the classes. Feminism, she writes, means that you have to read a lot. You have to understand a lot, to feel, to be honest, to say what you believe. In spite of the establishment, in spite of the government or the institutions where you work, and you may have to sacrifice a lot. That's feminism. We should come together and be politically organized. We need a political party of women, <clears throat> not social organizations. They have to be afraid of us. We have to challenge governments, make them fall if necessary. Uh, but to just talk, to just write, that won't get us anywhere. Because women have no collective power. Male authority will tell women to go back home once the revolution is successful. Women must come together and become politically powerful as a preventive measure against relapses in the revolution. We are still begging. We are powerless. Throughout history, no group of people has ever obtained their rights by begging peacefully. They have snatched it from the hands of the authorities. And women shall win no other way. That's the end of the quotations from Dr. Nawal Sadawe. I have tons of marginalia here from the old days talking about women trading influence for rights you know what would you rather have would you rather have legal rights or would you rather have influence the 19th century women a lot of them went for uh more what they called their moral influence uh i don't think so anyway i continued to write about dr sadawe and her stay in uh kanatar women's prison outside cairo on KPFA Public Radio, I pleaded for letters to the Egyptian consulate. Um, now, that was the time when I first began to broadcast regularly on KPFA in Berkeley. I read uh, some part of her book on the air. And, of course, I received the expected complaints saying that it was unsuitable. Unsuitable for women in the West to talk about women in the East, not our culture, none of our business. Also unsuitable for children to hear of this uh, horror, that is, female genital mutilation. Dr. Sadawe wrote, uh, My profession as a physician led me at one stage to examine patients coming from various Arab countries, and among them were the Sudanese women. I was horrified to observe that the Sudanese girl undergoes an operation for circumcision 
which is ten times more cruel than that to which Egyptian girls are subjected. In Egypt, it is only the clitoris which is amputated, and usually not completely. But in the Sudan, the operation consists in the complete removal of all the external genital organs. They cut off the clitoris, the two major outer lips, and the two minor inner lips. Then the wound is repaired. The outer opening of the vagina is the only portion left intact. Not, however, without having ensured that during the process of repairing, some narrowing of the opening is carried out with a few extra stitches. The result is that on the marriage night it is necessary to widen the external opening by slitting one or both ends with a sharp scalpel or razor so that the male organ can be introduced. When a Sudanese woman is divorced, the external opening is narrowed once more to ensure that she cannot have sexual relations. If she remarries, widening is done again. Remember a movie I saw about this time? Uh, it was called Fire Eyes. It was made by women in Somalia. One of the husbands, a doctor as a matter of fact, uh, when asked why he insisted that his two wives be excised, replied, well, you would not leave home without locking the door. Dr. Sadawe wrote that the need of the state to control and subjugate women's bodies demands that Arab women be made into blind pussycats. That is her phrase, blind pussycats. She believes that the savage practices which suppress women are the direct result of the economic interests that govern society. A father must know that his children are his own flesh in order to hand down his property. If women were to seize the means of reproduction, patriarchy would perish, vanish overnight. The sexual mutilation of females is a practice which dates from antiquity. Herodotus, the Greek historian Herodotus, mentions female excision 700 years before Christ. Now, The Hidden Face of Eve was a catalyst book for me, just as James Baldwin's work was in the 1960s. Racism and sexism are world views. They are international addictions, I think I can call them. They will not give way, never until the world turns around. Dr. Sadawe wrote that in the late 70s, for example, the number of Egyptian women who went to the polls did not exceed 0.53% of the total votes cast. That's one half of 1% of votes cast in the general election. I don't know how that can be possible, but that's what she wrote in The Hidden Face of Eve. For Dr. Sudawe, feminism is synonymous with revolution. By the way, I'm sure you can find Nawal Sudawe on the uh, the net these days. Once again, the last name is El Sadawe, E L K 
capital S-A-A-D-A-W-I. I don't know if there's a capital on it on the net. Uh, Dr. Sadawe believes that class structure and exploitation must cease before women can regain her natural and reasonable right to name her own children and to decide their descent. I have to stop here. I was reading to you passages from an essay of my own published in 1988 called The Revisionist Imperative or Don't Rock the Boat, Sink It. All about the revolution, the revolution that we imagined was coming to us. All those years ago, this has been Jennifer Stone, be back on the air again next Tuesday at the same time. Until then, if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Yo soy Julieta Kuzmin, aquí con la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, bringing you noticias en español and in English. Música, poesía, soy Nina Serrano, la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8. My name is Esther Mania, la Raza Chronicles, here at KPFA 94.1 FM. Yo soy Vanessa Bohm, aquí con la Raza Chronicles. Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m., bringing you noticias de la Raza community. Yo soy Nicté, Crónicas de la Raza, todos los martes de 7 a 8 p.m. This is Maya, aquí con la Raza Crónicas, every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m., worldwide at kpfa.org, and in the Bay at 94.1.